0: Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline today with a special episode of the podcast. Um, we are talking as um, a special celebration of Black History Month, um, and we have some very special guests, um, emergency physicians, uh, folks with us here today uh, talking some uh, mentorship, representation, access to care, how did you get where you are, what are we seeing now, the hurdles that still exist, and where do we go from here. And um, you know, I love these types of podcasts. If you listened a few weeks ago, you tuned in for Women Physicians Day. We had a special Veterans Day podcast from a couple of years ago uh, where we bring uh, some of the experts and and folks that have uh, walked the walk and talked the talk and and done it all. And um, so look forward to this one as uh, we really take a dive um, into a, um, a, still, a still a growing yet underrepresented aspect of especially emergency medicine. And as we drive further for diversity and inclusion, uh, it's integral that we understand um, viewpoints and also uh, how we can do things better and how do we move forward from here. And so with me today, uh, Dr. Adair Landry, uh, Dr. Alistair Martin, and Dr., uh, as, uh, excuse me, I was going to mess it up, Ugo. I, I almost did it already. So Dr. Ugo uh, as a quail. And if you, you, you've, learnt, you've heard Ugo on here before. Uh, so it's, uh, it, he's, it's his second round on the podcast. So I appreciate all of you joining us today uh, and uh, look forward to our conversation. Um, so we're going to start just based on uh, the order uh, that my paper provided for us. Uh, today, uh, Dr. Martin, just give us a little background uh, of your uh, process, your journey, and how you got to where you are. Starting with the bald guy first, huh? We have to have some sort of selection criteria. Now, I least, like it. it may or may not be that it was just the first on the paper, but <laughs> however,
1: I like it. I like it. um Well, thank you, uh, Ryan, for for having me on, and, um, and 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 hello to the listeners. My name is Alistair Martin. I'm an ER physician. An assistant professor up here in Boston, cold, cold Boston, where it was just negative 31 degrees uh, just last week um, here at Harvard Medical School, um, where I really focus my work on the intersection between health and politics. Unfortunately, right, because at the end of the day, really, what um, what I think you all know most in your bones, for the listeners out there, is that politics influences the care that we can give to our patients. And we've got to be part of the political conversations that help to shape the laws, the policies, the procedures, et cetera, that we adhere to. Uh, my story, quite frankly, is one of uh, not not just mentors, I'll say this, they, these were heroes in my life who really helped me get to where I am today. I come from a low-income community uh, in New Jersey. And uh, my first hero you know, was my mom. My mom uh, sacrificed... Uh, a career that uh, she loved, was good at. Uh, she was an international human rights consultant flying all over the world. And after my dad left, she had to find a career that was uh, much more stable, kept her uh, at home and, and, and got me the health insurance that I needed as a kid. I was sick as a kid. Um, and so without her uh, sacrifice, without her dedication, uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't be here today. Um, but all throughout my life, I've had folks really go to bat for me uh, like my uh, assistant coach uh, 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 in um, uh, at Rutgers, who is the assistant coach who scouted me. I played tennis uh, in high school uh, back in Neptune, where not a lot of folks played tennis. My assistant coach Bob Stanicky uh, helped me at a really critical uh, point in my life. I had I had dropped out of high school. I'd gotten into a, a rough situation in my neighborhood and had to um, was expelled from my high school. Unfortunately. And I really was lost there for several months, didn't have a plan to get back into high school, get back into college. And, um, and he was one of the most important and critical uh, kind of inflection point people in my life. He actually helped me get my GED and then helped me get into Rutgers as a uh, scholar athlete playing tennis at, uh, at Rutgers, which is the greatest uh, in New Jersey, which is the greatest state uh, in the union, by the way, greatest beaches uh, for that matter. Uh, Jersey Shore, holler at me. Um, but but there have also been people uh, all throughout my my residency training and my medical school training who have similarly gone to that. And I'm really, really excited to have one of those people here with me today. And that's Dr. Daryl Landry, who has been like, you know, uh, I, I don't want to say the word godmother, because like, basically, she looks younger than me. Um, uh, but like, this woman has been since the moment she touched down at my residency program uh just been like uh a champion of mine someone who has looked over my shoulder uh someone who has been uh consistently uh looking out for me in a way that uh man i wish i i wish i had that growing up uh throughout you know my my high school undergrad career i'm just so lucky i found it uh in adara you know, at least this part of my career in residency, there are lots of stories like the first time that uh, we uh, started working together. I don't know if you're gonna remember this, Adara, with the chief resident incubator for ALEM, which was like this, you know, what does it mean to be a chief resident? How do you do it right? She took me through that, really walked me through from her experience as chief resident um, and time and time again, uh, she has just been an incredible ally and advocate. And I can't wait to get into some of the incredible work that she's doing because one of the things that I really love about Adara is she's not only just an incredible ER physician, a mother of three, and also has varied interests across the uh, uh, across the gamut from uh, startup work to uh, authorship, book authorship. She's kind of the the principal example of someone of how someone can be an ER doc and successful in so many other venues of their life, and so for me really just has just stood out as a mentor in, in a paragon of excellence. So that's what I got to kick things off, Ryan. I'm going to kick it back to you.
0: Well, I will guarantee you in terms of agreement that the uh, New Jersey beaches are much better than the Kentucky beaches. Uh, now, that being said. That's a, low, that's, a
1: low, that's a low blow, Ryan. It's a
0: low <laughs> blow. But listen, we'll, we'll take you down to Asbury Park. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And we've got uh, now the bourbon horses. That's a different story. We'll. We'll debate on that one. Um, so, it, love the love that uh, background because actually I was reading along part of it um, as you're getting into it with being um, expelled um, from school and really that integral nature and, it, and that really is a, a theme that recurs with so many people that have gone through challenges, gone through a valley, is that person that has taken that that singular and focal interest to help get you to the next level, to help help uh, help you up and to uh, move forward and you know it's amazing listening to that my wife was a was very similar situation not in terms of being um, expelled uh, not that she's told me but you know in terms of studying mcats and bars um, and and making that decision to go when she was being pushed to go into cosmetology and um, you know so it's that that singular person uh, that or people that have really kind of shaped that way and you know, and talking in terms of politics, that is so, it's so integral. It's so against the scientific mindset. You know, scientific mindset is need evidence. If the evidence shows an answer, you follow that answer. Whereas politics, learning the side of politics is one plus one equals house cat, just to help Melissa with her cat references for the day. And, you know, with that aspect is the whole idea that you know, that that it's very different. The connections aren't always there. It's not as always clear cut. And knowing getting into politics here in Kentucky with Frankfurt and then on the DC side, that it as a physician, it can be very frustrating. And I think why it keeps many of us out of it uh, in terms of that, but it is integral, especially this day and age in terms of that advocacy. And then you did kind of tee up for me very easily and and appropriately, Dr. Adara Landry. Uh, She is our second guest today and um we're going to i mean honestly there's not much more in terms of my side of the intro but i do want to hear your side of uh, of the story so give us some background on yourself and your path uh, to being a successful emergency physician
2: yeah thank you and thank you also for having me on you know it's funny that Alistair mentions my my involvement in his career because truly helping people develop their careers is a, is a big passion of mine and um One of our earliest uh, memories, Alistair, is actually not the chief resident incubator, but it was about three years before that when I arrived to Brigham in Boston. And um, I was the only black woman faculty member at the time, actually for about a few, maybe about four years, that was true. And when I arrived very early on, That's when I saw and met Alistair, who I believe you are the only black man in the residency. And so I saw Alistair and I saw myself and I said, I I wanted to actually help him and and make sure that he felt supported and sort of um, be um, uh, a mentor for him. So I actually took Alistair out to lunch to this Mexican restaurant in Cambridge right outside of the Graduate Graduate School of Education. And I said, Alistair, just so you know, I'm taking you out because I I really want to be a source of support for you and make sure that you aren't feeling left behind. And I said, so tell me a little bit about what you're doing. And Alistair told me all of the amazing things that he was doing. And when he finished telling me that story of all of his accomplishments, I literally said, Alistair, can you mentor me? And that was really like the start of how we um, connected, I believe, was just understanding that the people who you you want to help can also be someone who helps you. So Alistair, I just want to say thank you, because you've actually taught me a lot over over the years as well. Um, I think my origin story actually starts back in Rialto, California, um, you know, that's where I was born and raised. I grew up in um, a neighborhood where many of my relatives and people of the community were involved in um, in gangs or, um, or had, you know, low-income um, jobs and were really just struggling as a community. Um, I had very little access to mentorship and guidance, um, but luckily my parents were um, you know very involved and they had a, a an aligned mission they wanted to make sure that education and personal development was at the forefront of our household so i was lucky i was you know i was an, i was a, i loved reading i loved studying and um, i did well in school better than, than in school than i did in sports or anything else so i just kind of like dove my head into books and and leaned in ended up going to berkeley i was 16 when i went to berkeley and so i moved out of my house um, and that was very unusual for my for my neighborhood. That was very unusual for my high school, um, for my family, and it was a really really big deal to to move out and do something as tremendous as um, attending Berkeley. And when I got there, I saw how how just expansive the you know the arena of education can be, and how little I knew about navigating that space and. Um, I struggled. I'll be honest. I struggled to network, um, to understand what success looks like, to um, to push myself and do unusual things. And somehow I managed to get into UCLA. But when I got there, I, I, I felt the same sentiment that I had at Berkeley. And it really wasn't until my fourth year of um, residency, when, or excuse me, medical school, when I went to NYU for like an away rotation, where I met another person, Dr. Uche Blackstock, there who um, really, really, really took me under her wing and showed me what mentorship looks like, what we were able to do with our MD, um, gave me a lot of amazing advice and talked to me about networking and building a brand and just really trying to challenge myself that I understood um, what I was capable of doing. And so as I moved through residency, I really focused a lot on developing a network, pushing myself, picking up projects. um, And I've sort of continued that passion along the way. And now um, I'm still at the Brigham. I've been here for um, six and a half years. I've had various positions as an assistant residency director. I was an interim fellowship director, and now I do a lot more with the medical school. And what I've come to do over the last few years is really try to expand on what it is in the workplace that many of us struggle with. And I do that through like one-on-one mentorship, but also through writing and I've learned that writing is um, a really great tool of reaching many people. And so I, I almost feel like when I, when I write, I'm like mentoring the, the, the reader um, and really trying to share what I have learned, all the lessons I have learned to the person who's reading the piece. And so, yes, as Alistair mentioned, I am working on a lot of writing projects. Um, and then also because I'm so passionate about writing, starting a nonprofit that's focused on teaching people of color how to write.
0: Well, the good news is I look forward to having you as my future guest on our author series. Um, which is one of my, one of my favorite uh, things that we do. Are, are uh, sometimes not physician authors, but many of them are physician authors. Uh, and uh, and uh, just recently uh, had one post last week. So I look forward to having you on for that. And when what I've loved to hear, and it's very much the stories I've I've heard um, with uh, the prior Women Physi- uh, Women Physicians Day podcast, was not only about you know finding the path. Even if it involves creating a path, but then bringing others, guiding others to the path, um, and I think that's that's one of the real big messages here. The the way we reach success, the way we repre- fully represent who we are as these United States, is by mentoring folks and getting them onto that path and, and going that direction. Or 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 folks like Dr. Martin, who, as he mentioned, is uh, was a little bit sideways for a little bit, and you know it really took somebody investing and pulling them back towards the path and said, here, you've got, you've got potential, and this is how we're going to help you move forward. And now for our returning guest, um, and the one that uh, looks like he's ready for a little Valentine's uh, Day dinner. He's, he's, if you, you don't see the pictures of us here because it's audio podcast, but we can. We can all see each other. And uh, he is dressed up like he always is every time I've ever seen him. Um, and uh, uh, enjoy seeing you. So Dr. Hugo ensign uh, th- great having you back with us and um, give, us, give us your background.
3: Uh, so thank you, thank you, Ryan. I appreciate the words and I appreciate meeting you, Alistair Martin and Daryl Landry, and enjoying this time together on this, uh, this uh, talk. So, yeah, so a little bit about myself. I'm a professor of emergency medicine at Mount Sinai. I run the emergency department at Mount Sinai, Queens, which is a community academic site. I've been doing this for seven plus years now, and it's been a growth in itself. So I'm somewhat of a medical director slash chief. I'm also the system vice chair for equity, diversity, equity and inclusion as part of the Mount Sinai health system. And I recently took on the role as the committee chair for the American College of Emergency Physicians, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, which is an inaugural committee that I just started up recently. So before I launch into how I got to this pathway here, I'm I was I'm a born New Yorker. I was born and raised in New York. Uh, yes, my father is from Nigeria. And so we never really knew much about the family back home. I think around about 9-ish, 10-ish, 11, I was getting sort of to be that New York kid who was being led astray. Uh, you know, we are getting into trouble just basically on me and my, my brother and myself. And so uh, one time my dad said, well, let's say we're going to a family trip, we're going to Nigeria. Little did I know there was a one-way ticket. So from about three or four years, I was pretty much in Nigeria with my grandfather, who was a, a farmer. He lived in a farm and he was also a traditional healer. And so I sort of got the bug to sort of helping people. And that's sort of my passion for medicine came from there. Came back to New York, and I will tell you that some of the experiences that you have in life are from the people around you, the mentors that you have. I had some really great mentors, but also had some middle school uh, sort of guidance counselors who gave you wrong advice and who pretty much was trying to steer me away from this path of medicine into something else. And luckily, unfortunately, I did not pay attention. And my father at that point was working at the United Nations, so I was able to go to the UN school in Manhattan. And there I met the guidance counselor who said, if you wanna do medicine, you might as well go to Baltimore to Johns Hopkins. And I was like, okay, I had no idea. And so I just caught a bus. That was my first day in school was a bus, a Greyhound, a Greyhound that took me to to Baltimore. And so I spent the nine years of my life in Baltimore. I did the um, undergraduate, I did medical school and I did public health school at Johns Hopkins. And then from there residency, I did a Fulbright and then the rest is I, I went into medicine. It's funny, when you're talking, I saw the, Dr. Landry talking about being at NYU and Ucho Blackstock, who happened to be one of my residents, and, and eventually then became on, and she's done wonderful work in the equity space. And, uh, you know, I've had some solid mentors, like Dr. Goldfrank, the chair of the department, who is just an icon, and he was somebody we're all looked up to. And he kind of guided our different careers, and he sort of exposed me to this sort of being that activist, that you can sort of do things for people and without having to be fully engaged. in, so I became part of what we call the National Medical Association, the section on emergency medicine. And that's where I truly met all the wonderful mentors I've had. You can name the names from Lynn Richardson, who's currently at Mount Sinai with me, to Cheryl Heron, to Leon Haley, who's passed away recently. I will tell you that I met some of the icons in emergency medicine uh, through that section. And so we sort of built and we sort of been working in the disparities field for years, went over to SAEM, was one of the sort of vice chairs for the Academy for Diversity and Inclusion in Emergency Medicine, and now subsequently I'm, I'm here at ASAP, and I've done some work with ABEM. So it's been a long road, but it's been one that we've learned a lot. I've learned that the mentors are what sort of keeps you going, that you learn a lot as you're going, and you give back. I've managed to build a couple of programs. Um, you know, NYU's Bridging the Gap, which was a pipeline program and when I was over at Hall in uh, emergency department in the city in Brooklyn, I also built a Hall sort of e- a pipeline program for also for undergraduate students as well. So you give back to your communities, you bring this work because you want to sort of give a leg back for other people that come out behind you. So I'll keep it at that for now.
0: I appreciate it. And, uh, and uh, as mentioned, uh, currently um, the uh chair of the, the inaugural chair of the ACEPS Diversity, uh, Diversity Inclusion Committee and appreciate that because it is a, an actually very purposeful uh, mission of the college right now because we know that um, the more we look like our patients, the more we represent our communities, the better our patients' outcomes uh, tend to be. So um, with that, we're going to mix it up here. So Dr. Martin, sorry, you, you get to go last this time. Um, but, Ugo, with, with where we are right now, we know that, you know, around the world, but especially this country, has not always made the uh, best decisions and sometimes very much the worst decisions with regard to um, black Americans. So with regard to where we are with medicine right now and um, whether the landscape of physicians, our emergency medicine, wherever that what may be, what are some of the challenges and things that we're still seeing, those hurdles that still exist uh, that uh, you work through uh, every day?
3: Yeah, great question, uh, Ryan. I think you know, over the past couple of years, more recently, we have seen almost a backward progression of where we used to be. Uh, it's a really a, bit, a, a point now where the words DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, has almost become a bad term. And it's the sort of anti-woke culture that we're seeing happening and playing out in Florida and parts of this country, which is really um, impactful. And I think that the, you know, in the future, we're going to have some challenges to the sort of affirmative action that is coming with the Supreme Court's decision. It is a challenging, as you say, but something that we can't sort of let deter us from forming more inclusive organizations. I think ASAP is not at the point where it's recognized that having a workforce that represents the communities that it serves, the populations that they serve is important, but more importantly, looking at everything that we do through a lens of health equity. And I think that's part of my role at ASAP is making sure that we can create systems and structures and put them in place that sort of can speak to the health disparities that we've had existing in this society for several decades, at least, and will continue to be pervasive through the future. So you know there are challenges. I think that the sentiment right now is appalling at times where so it feels like we just are not speaking to each other. Uh, we're speaking at each other and that we just really need to sort of step back and listen and expect that the, the experience, the shared experiences of being a physician is not that different from the shared experiences of being a patient. And yes, the patients are is what we take care of. For. We strive to do the best, but we can't divorce the two. And I think that if we want to create more inclusive health healing environments, we really have to take into account the totality of the patients we take care of and of course the workforces who are charged with doing this work. I think it is exciting. I'm not going to speak, you know, I'm not going to hog up the time here, but I think it is exciting work that's coming on. That we can't let ourselves go off that sort of the direction of the light, and that we have to push forward and create pathways for others to come behind us and fill in the gaps. And so, yes, the community programs, the engagement, the pipeline programs are all part of the part of the part of the form, and we have to get, ultimately get a healthcare system that serves the needs of everyone, not just a select few of those who can afford it.
0: So, Dara, uh, I'll let you you have know, next swing those those challenges, but also um, you know one thing um, that you've talked about in the past has been the minority tax. Um, I'd like to you know dive into some of those challenges, but also that topic as well, because that is to me one of the things that outside um, the, the traditional minority population. That idea of of a minority tax probably seems very foreign to many people, and I think it's it's very, uh, it's very important that we that we kind of see and understand, so we can make those conscious efforts to avoid undue pressure. So, uh, let's get uh, your thoughts: those challenges, hurdles in the minority tax.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the minority tax is is probably one of the greatest challenges and hurdles. So, I think you know, for many academic programs, especially, but I think largely just in medicine. We saw around the time of the pandemic and just before a big shift, a big um cl- clear interest in ramping up dei intri- um, involvement and 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 putting attention and spotlight into these efforts. And that was in the form of titles. We saw a lot of vice chair positions sort of open up and get pre- um and get presented on social media or or there were even academic pieces that were published about um the sort of rollout of new, um, leadership positions within departments, sort of showing that they have validity and there's a presence and they have a voice. And then we also um saw within our own department and other departments in my hospital system, more um, um money and and time buy down uh, uh, and and buy down um for positions such as being a community a committee chair or um, director of and those sorts of um positions I felt like were represented. Um, more more equally compared to let's say someone who did like hospital admin or or quality and safety and so I thought that there was some parity, especially early on in the pandemic, and I think what we're, what what I'm seeing not just in my own hospital but just across medicine on social media and talking to other folks is a lot of that initial fire that was present seems to be dwindling. And I think it could be because of the minority tax and, and that many of us, like I, I didn't mention this, but, um you know, my clinical interest at, after residency was ultrasound. And so I spent um, two years doing a fellowship and then I had, um, you know, a position within my division that was geared towards ultrasound um, and then a lot of the folks who are in my office of um, ideas, which is our the diversity and inclusion and health equity space, like they also have other interests as well, whether it be um, hospital admin or um, informatics or global health. And so a lot of us have other primary interests. Um, just like our counterparts, our white male counterparts are, are um, um, especially where we we feel like we have to add something onto the same tasks that they they are also doing. And so that dilutes some of the work that is um, more likely to be acknowledged by hospital promotion and, and tenure committees. And so that becomes an issue. We're we're trying to get the work done that we are here for to do, like that, that we were primarily here for. And I came for, let's say, ultrasound or teaching medical students. And then on top of that, I have other stuff that I'm doing that potentially is unfunded, that might not be as recognized, um, that might not have a voice, that might not have um, easy to track or observe um, or measurable outcomes. And so it's really hard to even see if the work and time and energy you're putting into these efforts is actually changing the landscape altogether. And so all of those things kind of make it hard to be sustainable. And that's our ultimate goal, right? Like it's not about just starting an office or creating a a vice chair position and then you're done. It's that sustainability, that that continued energy that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, I think personally might be dwindling, not just in New England, but actually across most of medicine. Um, And to your question about the minority tax, I I, I mean, that's sort of what I was speaking to earlier is that I I think um, we want this time that we're spending like mentoring students um recruiting um applicants um um, advocating for change within the department or your hospital. We want all of that time to matter just as much as applying for a grant or getting a grant or writing a research paper, right? And the problem is that they're not one-to-one, it seems like. I mean, it feels like they're not one-to-one um, as we, in regards to how they are respected and how they're viewed. And because of that, it feels like a tax because I'm 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 now just sort of being charged for something. I have to, I have to, I have to pay with time and I get nothing in return. If those efforts were meaningful truly, then I I don't think people would feel that way. I think they would feel like this is amazing that I can I can mentor high school students in my neighborhood, and that is just as valuable as spending those same hours applying for a grant or speaking at a keynote conference.
0: So I mean. Just kind of roll off that 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 idea that, and just see if I translated this incorrectly uh, or not. This idea that, oh, because you're black, you're going to want to do this um, and and take on this project and take on this goal and take on whatever it is, uh, to because as you mentioned, the minority tax is the idea that uh, doing for free or for little money or 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 compensation or little whatever the value uh, placed on it, uh, is to solve the uh, population-based concerns or problems just because you are who you are? Because I think about it now, and I think about the idea of if you come into uh, the setting, oh, Adara's, Adara's African-American, she's black, she'll definitely want to do all of our DEI-related stuff and do all those things. Is that kind of that feel that we're expecting you to do everything else that everybody else does, um, you know, that we all do as an emergency physician, but also taking on those challenges and expectations uh, of of representing uh, upper, underrepresented populations within your workplace.
2: Well, I think people do the work be- because they are passionate. So you you might do the work for one of three reasons. You might do it first because you are truly passionate about it, and you and it makes you feel good. It gives you a sense of purpose. I think that's the vast majority of people. But I also think there are some people who do feel a sense of obligation to um, give back and um, or pressure to give back because it is it is expected of them. Um, then there could be a third bucket and I, and I would really hope it's small and non-existent, but people feel like they are being assigned to this task by others. Um, I, I definitely tell the folks I mentor to not feel obligated to join our office if they become a faculty member. I'm like pretty clear and open about that. Like this, this should be something that you want to do that brings you a sense of purpose, but it's totally okay if you just want to be a toxicologist and you want to do research in toxicology. I try to normalize that because I don't think it should just be us trying to diversify our fields. I think it should be everyone. And so I, I, I personally, I have a, a, a mission to normalize, like, it's okay if you just want to be present and your presence in our department is enough to entice people to want to come here. I don't think you have to go beyond that.
0: So Alistair, um, now you're, you're batting third this time. It's good news is for you, this is the last time you're going to bat third in this conversation, you're second next time. Now I always tell folks in these conversations where you have three guests that I rotate around so everybody has a chance to go first and everybody has a chance to go last because the person who goes last in this particular conversation has a, a, has a larger lift uh, because some of the other stuff has been discussed already. But you actually have a very unique viewpoint. Um, and I actually got into that in your background, into... Um, and actually, Hugo, you did, you, you did as well as, you know, you did, as a young young person, you start going off the wrong path, going the wrong direction. Um, and Alistair, it actually sounds like you were full off the track um, and off the highway um, and they had that opportunity to pull back. And as you look back at it now, as somebody um, who uh, has opportunity and will uh, save countless lives and... and, and um, and see people during their times of need. What are those challenges now that you've gone through those challenges, many challenges yourself? Um, what you see now, different versions of challenges, different hurdles, um, and how potentially to address some of those things when you see come somebody come in and it's in front of you in the emergency department that may be facing similar situations that you did.
1: Yeah, well, thank you very much for that, Ryan. I think it's a great question, and also I want to build on what Adara said. You know, sort of link the two things. I'll just put it bluntly: to me, to me, it feels like the equity honeymoon is over. It feels like we are back to where we were prior to COVID. I think exactly as as Adara said, um, there was this window of time, you know, triggered by the, the murder of George Floyd. Compounded by COVID, where it wasn't just the usual suspects anymore who were talking about equity and the social determinants of health and bias, and you know we had some, we had folks in the rooms who were who were talking about these issues who you know had power and had had money and had resources to commit to try and address some of the upstream issues, right that led to. You know, for example, uh, COVID impacting Black and Brown communities at two, three, four, even five times higher rates, right? Um, And so it was a really, really wonderful window of time. I think if it is not closed, it is rapidly closing. Um, How do I see it in my work? Well, the conversations that I have nowadays are a lot harder, right? Uh, Getting uh, folks to care about, for example, uh, uh, interventions or policies that connect people to money to pay their internet bill, which is a program that we run out of our hospital called Link Health. There's uh, a 30, there's $30 a month that uh, patients can use to buy internet if they don't have it, and $100 to get a new computer. It's called the Affordable Connectivity Program. It's a new federal benefit, y'all. If you haven't heard of it, please go check it out. You would think, Ryan, I was pulling teeth. What I'm trying to get hospitals to think about, how do we help our patients access this free pot of money that's sitting there? Hospitals don't want to do it, many of them. Uh, why? Because I think things have shifted. I think the financial climate is much, much, much more different, right? I think we're in a very different place now with, you know, growing concerns around a recession and, you know, the turnover and staffing crises and interest rates rising. Um, and so I think that uh, what we are seeing is the reprioritization of, you know, money in the economic situation in this country over equity, over addressing uh, historical wrongs, over uh, uh, closing uh, the divide in um, in health access gaps. So I'm, I'm concerned. Uh, I am concerned. I think that we're shifting back into a like, you know, health equity as a as a buzzword. Frame now, where, whereas I think we had for two or so years there some real resources on the table to try and uh, commit to uh, uh, making making ish- making moves on these that were concrete moves. Now, of course, there are examples out there of organizations and hospitals and clinics and residency programs and medical schools that took the example of COVID and are not just talking talking the talking or they're walking the walk. And we need to lift up, amplify, tell the stories of those clinics, of those hospitals of those change makers, because I think that's really the way that we're going to uh, uh, leave our healthcare system better than we found it. It's this real sort of prioritization of actions over words. And I think that's what we really need most of all now, right?
0: I've heard, you know, a couple of mentions uh, of, of the end of the honeymoon. And, you know, since we're a little pull back the curtain, since we're recording this on Valentine's day, you know, that the, you know, marriage, there is that honeymoon and it's, it's relatively easy then. everybody's, everybody's happy, everything's easy, and then afterwards you find out if there's real substance to the relationship, if there's real substance, and, and, and whether it's something that's going to last a lifetime. And, you know, listening to the conversations here, the question now with the boost that COVID gave to a lot of things, um, that, that opportunity for change, uh, of evolution, um, of whether it was a, a um, token olive branch or whether it's actually substance and sustainability, something that can actually be used as a foundation to build moving forward. And that'll transition us to that next part, looking forward. Um, you know, we've, we've got, as we back out of COVID, um, you know, just Alistair, the, the idea that I'm thinking about here is, you know, with your act, uh, talking about the access to internet and computers, which seems like something that's relatively small to most people, to many people, is something that's incredibly important the entire world functions uh, uh electronically now the idea that during COVID, if you didn't have access to the internet you may not be able to get in touch with a uh, a physician or school or whatever it may be uh but for you know here locally talking about you know the re- potential resistance to access to narcan um you know why is that even a question you know it's especially when it's already paid for by government grants and you know why is it even a question of whether that's something we should make available you know and and so i feel like right now there's so much of this within healthcare uh, and in general, general population and communities where we are um, struggling to get our footing back. And the question is with the idea uh, of DEI and underserved and, and minority populations, is how do we double down and legitimately put a ring on it uh, for for a lifelong commitment? And so as we, I, I, I gotta say, I, I really like where you're going with this metaphor, Ryan. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, you're really committing to this metaphor. I like it.
0: Yeah, that's, well, that's, that's one of the things, and anybody who's listened to a bunch knows I talk a lot in metaphors. That may be a, 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 it may be a gift or it may be a curse. Either way, I guess depending on the situation. But you know that, that thing, as we move forward, as we commit moving forward, and Alistair, I appreciate you kind of making a, an interesting little small edit point for me in the middle of the show. Uh, the, there's the idea of where do we go from here? you know, whether it be mentorship, whether it be um, representation, whether it be access to care, as we move forward from uh, 2023 and beyond, um, how do we do so in a way that is not only uh, improves access, uh, improves representation, improves lives across the board, you know, as physicians, as healthcare, and even, uh, even for our patients. And Adara, I'll let you take uh, the, the, the first swing at it.
2: Well, I'm going to speak from the perspective of recruitment and um, mentorship and, and just sort of nurturing someone's career. And I really do think there needs to be drastic investment, like drastic um, um, commitment to the cause. And so that starts really early on with um, um, providing um, um, access to um, exposing young kids um, to what they're capable of doing, and so for me, that that's a, a large part as far as why I actually moved from training residents and fellows to now it's like medical students, college students, and actually just now starting some stuff with high school students because I I think that early exposure um, is really important, and I and I think we think about you know healthcare as just what's in front of us and the person we're treating right now and and way less on developing the next generation, the next few generations of doctors and starting really early on and getting them um, interested in school and and teaching them to believe in themselves. So I think there definitely needs to be some drastic commitments to um, really, really, really early, early learners. Um, The second is um, understanding that there are still some some parts in the recruitment process. I'm just going to speak about recruitment. Um, um, let's say for residency, there are still some really large gaps where we are missing um a lot of talent. And and we matches coming up. I don't know when this is going to come out, but matches coming up in a few weeks, and we still don't know the demographics of those who are unmatched. And actually, I have a paper that was just accepted to Stat News today. Um, that's going to be talking about the rank list, because we can interview folks as much as we want and say that we're interviewing more Black and Latinx and Native American uh, medical students. We're interviewing so many more than last year. But what really matters is where they are on the rank list, right? And so that is the drastic measure that I'm talking about, which is really, really committing and saying, our program is great. We can train people. We really feel like diversity is important. So we're going to recruit people who we might have otherwise said might not be comfortable in this environment, might be academically challenged, and we're going to actually take a chance and let them prove themselves to us and put them higher on the rank list. I don't know if that's exactly what's occurring because we don't have the data of those who are unmatched, which is the point of the article I wrote, which is we actually need to see that data. We need to see if all those people we're were interviewing for residency, if they're at the bottom of those rank lists, then no matter how you interview, no matter what type of recruitment dinner you have, no no matter what type of mixer or social or one-on-one mentorship you're promising, if they're at the bottom of the list, they're not getting in. And so that's how we're going to change the face of medicine, is we really have to be drastic in our measures.
0: Actually, that discussion reminds me of the Rooney rule for the NFL, where allowing, allowing interviews doesn't necessarily mean actually getting the job. If you're going to open the door, do you actually have a seat at the table? And I mean, I think that's um, an important aspect. And that is, and I, I think it should for sure be that transparency that shows, you know, just because you say, as we was mentioned earlier, talking the talk versus walking the walk. So Alistair, your thoughts, same question, uh, mentorship, representation, steps moving forward.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, Ryan. So like, I think um, uh, it sounds trite, trite to say, but representation matters and it, and, it, and it really does. Let me give you a, a concrete story uh, from my experience. So back in uh, the spring of 2021, when the vaccines were, were beginning to come out, and actually, let, let, me, let me go back even further uh, to, to I think, an even um, uh, more uh, damning story uh, that might prove the point. Um, it is like, it's May 2020, Oof, uh, for those of you who remember what that was like taking care of patients back then. Um, and here in Massachusetts, we had begun, um, you know, reaching in to our stockpiles of, uh, of, um, ventilators and we were running out of ICU beds and we were converting this and that to be holding rooms for patients, but we were running out of space and capacity. And we started to have conversations then about a new thing, a new concept that none of us had ever heard about in our department. And that was called the crisis standard of care. Okay. It's this idea that if and when we run out of ventilators at our hospital, we are now going to shift into Uh, creating a point system for patients, okay? So the more points you had, the less likely you were to get a ventilator. So how did you get points? We had a a person from the state come to our department, wonderful woman, very smart, very intelligent, described to us
0: the point system,
1: Ryan. And how do you think you got points, Ryan?
0: Well, I just gonna guess that uh, has to do with age and medical conditions and- You got it. If you have
1: medical problems, if you have a long past medical history list, you got points. So what were some of the things that would get you points? If you had diabetes, if you had chronic kidney disease, if you had lung disease, if you were overweight, okay? So who does that system unfairly prejudice by increasing the points that folks come in with a priori? Communities of color. Right. So black and brown communities who have historically higher rates of these conditions, diabetes, CKD. Uh, why? Because of racism, right, because they live in communities where they do not have access to a primary care doctor. They do not have access to the pulmonologist or to the nephrologist. And so they have a higher preponderance of these disease. So bottom line is what we were staring down the barrel of here, Ryan, was the uh, was the idea that if folks came in with covid, which, by the way, Black and brown communities had COVID at a much higher rate. We were then going to have to tell them at higher rates, no, I'm sorry, we can't give you a, a ventilator. Sorry, we cannot give you an ICU bed. And so when we began to look at this, myself, a group of organizers, some politicians here in the state of Massachusetts, what did we find? The group that wrote the recommendations right, for the crisis standards of care wasn't one Black person on the group. All right. There was no Latino in the group. Why does that matter? Because those people were smart. They were intelligent. They met well, but they had a blind spot, right? They had a bias and they couldn't see that the system that they were creating was going to unfairly uh, impact a a community, a whole community. Had they had somebody in that room to say, hey, by the way, hold up, Um, look at the let's look at the facts. The facts are that communities of color have much higher rates of all of these diseases. Could it be that we're gonna make the situation worse and further widen disparities? That's why representation matters, Ryan. That's why we've gotta keep the pipeline strong. That's why we gotta have uh, black and brown folks in, in uh, positions of leadership. That's why we gotta have women in leadership because we get to protect our blind spots that way. The, the situation uh, is that the, the the outcome, the product of those decisions will be better. Uh, and that is what studies have shown. So. I think that's that's what I would leave the folks with in terms of future steps, considering how we can protect our own biases, protect against our own biases by making sure that the folks who are uh, at the table uh, are diverse, are inclusive, and and have the ability to uh, make empowered decisions.
0: A great example of an unconscious bias there and, and not understanding those, speaking of politics, uh, the the potential downstream effects of a decision that probably at some point was had the best of intentions, but um, had um, undue harm as a result. And interestingly, um, if folks want to listen back to the podcast from a few years ago, I had had an interview from Emerald Coast Conference from uh, Dr. Jim Kennedy uh, out of Oklahoma. And he had talked about, um, we were talking about the history and healthcare and medicine within the Native American population. And, you know, something that I never learned in school was that diabetes uh, and obesity and those, those things actually did not significantly exist, especially diabetes, until uh, somebody thought they were doing uh, a benefit to the population and bringing in and teaching them how to grow uh, and harvest corn and then um, introducing um, you know a food product that uh, has changed the course of that population uh, forever. And so uh, maybe something to listen back to. You know on those ideas and things because i actually heard about uh, this idea of how do we ration like mass casualty incident rationing of ventilators and potentially hooking them together or whatever it may be and you know and that that's a very very fine line and i remember getting those interviews and saying i don't want to be the person who, who chooses who dies you know my, my job as an emergency physician is to say that for every single patient that comes through this door, I've got to do every single possible thing I can, uh, it, you, know, uh, you know, keeping aside, you know, futility and hospice and end-of-life care, but do everything that I possibly can to get the best outcome for my patients. And I don't want to have to pull those two chains, to pull that tug of war between do I let this person live or die? And one and so, thing I just want to add on yeah. that, Brian, is in that case in Massachusetts, just to give folks the end
1: of the story, because of the advocacy of physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners and PAs, we were able to overturn that crisis standards of care. And in two weeks, uh, the state issued a new one. So uh, in terms of future directions, we need to make sure that we start with recognizing the power that we have as physicians first and foremost.
0: Good mention of, of the advocacy need for physicians to be involved uh, and a potential good plug for leadership and advocacy uh, in Washington, D.C. coming up as an opportunity to get up there and make your voice known um, as an emergency physician in Adira. to let you know this is going to be released the Monday after we record it because uh, it's important. I think it's important to represent the month that we're in right now. Um, and so, Ugo, we'll let you wrap up with uh, current state, future state, mentorship, representation and the like.
3: Yeah. So thank you, Ryan. I think that a lot of the conversation we have had here sometimes can feel like there is no hope that things in the past couple of years have taken sort of a backward step. And, you know, it's one thing if you take one step forward and take two steps backwards, you're not going anywhere. What we really need is to take three steps forward. And even if we take two steps backward, we're still making progress. And I think that's what I feel. and that's, that's what I'm going to accept over these past couple of years has happened. We took three giant steps after the pandemic, and now we're taking two steps back, but we're still making progress, and we really have to concentrate on the systems that have been put into place and see how we can dismantle those structural racist systems, which is what you hear uh, Dr. Martin talking about, and also Dr. Landry, even through the minority test, the fact that promotions and tenure committees don't even take into aspect things that we will do, so that the minorities will do. Uh, to further a department. I'm Mount Sinai, where I am, we've actually changed the, the criteria, I guess you promoted and So we're more likely to concentrate on your DEI efforts as a means to get you on the clinical educator track, even maybe the clinical administrative track, you can get progress. So we have to continue to sort of focus on sort of dismantling some of this and take it from an advocacy point of view, without feeling like we can change decades of disparities overnight. It's going to take some time. And I am heartened by that because that's all we have. We have to sort of, we can't just throw up our hands and say there is just, we're not going anywhere with this. There are a lot of chief diversity officers, chief equity officers who have taken roles of power in the past few years. And they're doing phenomenal work at certain organizations and healthcare systems. And we have to continue to support them we have to build the pipelines that you just heard about from as far back as middle school to let students come in, communities of color, to come into the profession. So we're not having a workforce that is homogeneous, but a workforce that represents everyone. And so we have to put resources into that. We have to recognize that the resources, the economic resources are not uniform around the board. They're the people who just don't have access and access is a big thing. We need to be able to provide those resources and make sure that people get the scholarship funding. We were just talking about the fact that some institutions like NYU have free medical school. And, and so that's great. We need to do more of that. We need to encourage that to sort of take the language further. As emergency physicians, it may seem daunting. You know, you're working in the department. Your role is just to come and take care of patients. All this about bias, you don't want to think about it. You want to act maybe like as a colorblind society, but it's not. I think you also have to take it upon yourself to recognize what your biases are and work hard to make sure that you change and it doesn't affect the way you practice. But even more importantly, you can really do something for that one patient who's in front of you by way of making sure they get access to care, calling them back after they leave your emergency department, making sure they were able to pick up the prescriptions that you, you know prescribe for them. There are things you could do for another individual basis to sort of make a change that can affect the communities that you're dealing with. And there. are much more systematic things you can do. And that's where we come in as professional organizations. So ASAP has a blueprint that we're working on right now. And that's really was look at the work of the organization through a lens of health equity, from who we're hiring, vendors that we're hiring to where we're holding our conferences, to the people, the workforce that we look like, and to even the academic environment that we have at some of our institutions. And then even within contract medical groups, how do they function? Um, and so it is going to be a blueprint that we're working on. It's going to take some time to come out with, but the goal is to make sure that we've looked at the organization, taking a hard look at ourselves and saying, what can we do to make this a much more inclusive organization? So, yes, it feels like it's two steps backwards, but at least we're one step forward. And so we are just continuing to march and hopefully we could take many more steps forward and we'll get there. So I'm I'm not disheartened by it. I I think this anti-woke sentiment that we have right now, it's a shame because the people who are speaking about it, they really are a vocal minority who is amplifying a sentiment that may not necessarily represent the whims of the larger majority of Americans. And so recognizing that I am heartened to the fact that we can get some of this work done and that we'll have a future generation of leaders Uh, who could come in and change the real structures in place, sort of the real health system that, even though we have the most, um, what we would say the most expensive healthcare system, where about 17.8% of our GDP, our healthcare outcomes in this country is dismal. And a lot of that is because there's structural racist practices in place. And until we change those practices, we're going to continue to have horrible Health outcomes like maternal mortality amongst Black women, which is worse than our neighbor in Mexico, if you didn't know that, and so it's crazy, but it is the way we are, and I think that we just have to take these changes steps at a time, and we'll get there. And so I have a lot of hope, and um, in terms of mentorship, anybody who a mentee, who I, who's a, my mentee, I have the conversations with them, and I always tell them to sort of lean back, also lean be- behind them, and bring people ahead, such that we can make this change a much more lasting one.
0: All right, talking with Dr. Zinguel, Martin, and Landry, and so now the the final aspect of it. I want to give everybody a moment. Any final closing thoughts that you may have, as well as contact information uh, for folks to get in touch with you, whether that's email, whether it's social media, whether it's a website, whatever it may be. Um, you know, especially if you've got um, uh, uh, projects, uh, as I mentioned, uh, some of the projects that they're building up uh, to get involved and dig into. Um, so, closing thoughts. Contact Dr. Landry. I would just say, I'm sorry, Dr. Landry. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, it's okay. Um, sure. So, um, let me just take a second because I was listening to you. Um, so my closing thought is this. Um, you know, nothing I have done has been alone. Right? The papers I write are always co-authored, almost always. Um, the nonprofit I'm starting, I'm doing it with someone else, another doctor, and the book I'm writing, also co-authoring. And so I, I like to move with a team. I rely on a team. I, I learn from them. I help and I and I give. Um, and and I think it's really important to think about um, mentorship as one route of supporting people, but also sponsorship and collaboration. And I bring this up because. One final thought I have is a a memory of when I was told by a a more senior white faculty member that he hadn't reached out to me because he assumed that I wouldn't want to work with an old white guy, which is very far from true. Some of my most amazing mentors are people who look very different than me and have very different backgrounds than I do. And so collaboration, support, sponsorship, advising, mentorship can come from all different types of people and And it's from me from my standpoint, I've seen it welcomed. Um, and it can really, really help escalate someone's career. And so just keeping that in the forefront of your mind that if there's someone who you feel like might benefit from your support, you can be um, you know, compassionate and generous and offer that. and and that can come in different ways. Um, I love to um help people and support people. I do a lot of that through Twitter. Um, so feel free to reach out to me. My um hash, my handle, my handle is, at Adair Landry, MD, and um, my DMs are open, so feel free to reach out. If you have any questions?
0: I'm happy to help. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, uh, thank you for uh, for joining us today, Dr. Martin.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Ryan. Look, uh, I, I spent the last year or so uh, working down in D.C. at the White House in politics. Left my practice and went on sabbatical for for a year, and I learned what I think many many of the listeners uh, already knew. Um, but I learned it in, in, a, in a much more concrete fashion. That is this. In this country, politically, if you are not at the table, you are on the menu, okay? Um, if you are concerned or confused about where we are as healthcare providers, uh, uh, go to your next ER shift and tell and ask yourself, is it working? Is the healthcare system, is the way that we practice emergency medicine, is it working? The reason why things are in shambles like they are now is because when it comes to representation, when it comes to advocacy, when it comes to getting involved with our political system, doctors for too long have uh, taken a back seat. We have uh, chosen to sit on the sidelines. Uh, we've chosen to abdicate our responsibility. And if you need some facts to back that up, there was a recent study that uh, demonstrated that doctors vote uh, on average 15% uh, 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 at lower rates than the average uh, voter in this country. And I think that that's gotta change. Uh, Imagine if we were as as organized or uh, mobilized as lawyers in this country, we'd have a completely different healthcare system uh, 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 for starters. And so that my closing message is that, look, you know, we we as physicians cannot create a, a healthier healthcare system or a healthier democracy ourselves, but without us, it cannot be done. Uh, and the work that we're doing at our organization, A Healthier Democracy, is helping to empower uh, clinicians across the spectrum uh, to help change our, our political system so that our patients benefit at the end of the day. Uh, you can find us at ahealthierdemocracy.org, or you can reach out to me directly at alistair at ahealthierdemocracy.org.
0: Thanks, Ryan. And your com- that conversation is very interesting because I, I have a, a friend of mine that's a, a coal lawyer, and um, you know, so an- another industry that's in a weird place right now. And um, he says, Doc, I'm telling you right now because we were talking about some. It was actually as I was president of Kentucky ASAP but a, a number of years ago. And he he says, Doc, I can tell you right now, if I get a if I get a cause, I can snap my finger and raise all the money we need from a group of lawyers. But with regard to doctors, it's easier for me to squeeze a dollar out of a rock than it is a doctor. And, you know, that's, you know, that that, 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 that ability to invest time and money in positive formative change is something that we as physicians uh, have to continue to work towards. And so we're going to wrap up uh, today, Dr. Zinquale.
3: Yeah, uh, so thank we're- you. The one thing I want to say is, you know, support your professional organizations. Obviously, I cannot leave this conversation without saying that. Uh, we definitely, Step has a diversity inclusion and health equity section. Be a member of it. Join up. Uh, if you can't give your time, obviously dollars, give a shift if you can. You know, work a shift, give a thousand dollars. I don't know, give something. Uh, We also have a committee. We also have ASAP Council where a lot of the work gets done. And also there's a leadership advocacy conference, which is coming up. So there are many ways as an emergency physician, you can get involved and to make some of these changes, come to our committee meetings and you can, as a member of ASAP, you can sit in on the committee meetings and there's no issues there, contribute your ideas, your thoughts, and maybe your time. And as a member of this section, you could do a lot more just also by being there. The networking is immense. So really contribute your time. There's many organizations, professional organizations in EM and there's health systems as well that we could all work towards. So my thing is stay involved, try your best, can, And if you can't, yes, it's hard to squeeze money out of uh, physicians, but a thousand dollars will go a long way. Okay, not a thousand dollars, $250. just can go a long way uh, towards making some of these changes that we've just talked about. The task is immense and we have to sort of stay focused but I think we will get the eventual in the long run, maybe after I'm long and gone, but I think that we are going to create the workforce that's gonna represent the communities and the patients that we uh, we treat. Thank you, Ryan.
0: Yeah, thank you. Incredible conversation uh, today as part of uh, Black History Month, but something that uh, definitely needs to be uh, forefront and center, especially now that the honeymoon is over, um, as mentioned in the podcast, as we move forward to 2023 and beyond. Um, As for me, you can contact me, rstant at asap.org. rstant at asap.org, I invite you to uh, not only uh, get involved, uh, get registered for Leadership and Advocacy Conference, uh, but also um, uh, to subscribe to the podcast. A lot of fantastic uh, episodes, especially uh, ones like this, uh, where we uh, have a special focus for the episode that isn't necessarily something that's going to be uh, on the pages of, the, um, of your medical journal, even though actually there are a number of research studies re- uh, involving, in fact on the back end of the page was my 2018 study that found that uh, black patients have better health outcomes when they are seen by black doctors, found that black patients seen by black doctors were more likely to agree to preventive care like cholesterol testing, diabetes screening and feel more comfortable. And that's really what our goal is, is how can we be better physicians for our patients and help our patients get into a better place? Because it really isn't just about treating diseases once they're unstable, it really is about preventing disease. It really is about um, stabilizing disease. It's about preventing complications. It's, it's, it's about preventing those uh, unintended consequences that Dr. Martin was talking about with regard to CKD and diabetes and hypertension and, and every, everything of the like. So uh, as for me, Again, rstantonacep.org at Everyday Med on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASEP Frontline.
1: on the front lines, you're on the sidelines.